0: This episode of Historium is sponsored by Blueberry. Blueberry is the gold standard in podcast hosting, and that's why we use it to host all of our podcasts here on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. If you would like to get started making your own podcast and are looking for a way to host it, or you're using another podcast hosting platform and simply want to switch, you can get one month free podcast hosting through Blueberry if you go to orbitaljigsaw.com history. Bottom of the 8th. Tie game. Grounder in the infield. Second baseman snatched it up and fired to first. Out! called the prison guard turned umpire. Insults and cheers floated in from the crowd. This team was a prison team comprised entirely of inmates, known as the Wyoming State Penitentiary All-Stars. The infield was filled with thieves and murderers. The outfield had eight murders and four rapes between them. They were bad men, but damn were they good at baseball? The first baseman tossed the ball back to the pitcher, who walked up to the mound before staring down the catcher. His heart pounded. He was dying on the mound, in more ways than one. His life was literally on the line. My name is Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. This is episode 55, Death Row Baseball. On July 25, 1868, an act of the United States Congress established that land from the Idaho, Utah, and Dakota territories would become the new territory of Wyoming. Settlers and pioneers, eager for land or gold or simply new lives, trekked across Wyoming's rugged expanse. Cattle ranchers, ex-Confederate outlaws, Native Americans, and railroad barons all clashed over this land where the Great Plains met the Rocky Mountains. Soon, the fledgling Transcontinental Railroad carved its way through the territory, and frontier towns sprung up along the tracks. In 1890, Wyoming was admitted into the Union as the 44th state. With statehood, Wyoming needed to construct a state prison, and it made sense to put it in the town with the toughest stance on crime. The natural place for the prison was the railroad town of Rollins. You see, the denizens of Rollins were notoriously punitive, Outlaws, criminals, or various other ruffians on the run were punished harshly. After the outlaw Big Nose George was captured and hanged in Rollins, he was flayed and his skin was used to make a pair of shoes. These outlaw skin shoes were put on display in the local barber shop on Main Street as a warning to any potential lawbreakers. So, it made sense for the law-abiding town of Rollins to be the location for the new Wyoming State Penitentiary. Large stones were hauled in by train and carried by horse-drawn sleds to an open expanse just north of the town. The architectural plans were bold. Finely carved stones were fitted onto parapets of the walls. Looming guard towers rose above the scattered brush below. The Wyoming State Prison was completed right before the turn of the century and was quickly dubbed the Crossbar Hotel. It quickly received some famous guests, such as Frank James, Dolly Brandy, and notorious outlaw Butch Cassidy. A local millionaire named Otto Graham took a special interest in the prison. Graham had made his fortune in the apparently booming broom business, so when the prison came to town, his eyes flashed dollar signs as he thought of the hundreds of imprisoned men he could exploit as free labor. He soon became the prison's warden. As you might expect, life in the Wyoming State Penitentiary under the Warden Graham was horrific. Prisoners were forced to make brooms day in and day out. According to inhabitants at the Crossbar Hotel, conditions under Graham were merciless and of the Dark Ages. One prisoner noted that, quote, Meals were calculated down to the last bean so that just enough food was served to merely prevent starvation, unquote. These conditions were repeatedly reported to regional authorities, and in 1911, the practice of prison broom-building was banned by the state of Wyoming. With the prison profiteer Otto Graham finally ousted, the frontier prison needed a new warden. They found a new leader for the Crossbar Hotel and a man by the name of Felix Alston, an upright sheriff from a few counties over. Alston took a far more compassionate approach to prison management, and his new policies focused on rehabilitation as opposed to retribution. Inmates could now leave their seven-foot-by-five-foot cells to exercise and volunteer for work outside of the prison grounds. Another addition from the Alston regime was a prison baseball team. As the sun set on the Old Wild West, the sport of baseball entered its golden age. Players like Shoeless Joe Jackson and Ty Cobb enraptured fans around diamonds across the country, and there was no bigger fan than Felix Alston. He followed the sport closely, and his office was adorned with baseball memorabilia and pictures of his favorite players. His love of the game carried over to many of the inmates who joined the prison baseball team. As Warden Alston oversaw tryouts, he noticed a trend. All of the very best players were from death row. As the inmates practiced fielding grounders and pitchers slung breaking balls, the warden recognized something else. These guys weren't just good. They were great. As winter turned to spring in 1911, the Wyoming State Penitentiary had a bona fide baseball team, ready to play other teams in the region. They were dubbed the All-Stars. They wore navy uniforms with white trim with the letters WSP stitched on the front. Every single player on the team was a murderer, thief, rapist, or some terrible combination of all three. And all were on death row. On first base was Leroy Cook, a ranch hand from Missouri and walking baseball encyclopedia, guilty of first-degree murder. On second was George Sabin, a broad, mustachioed rancher with a knack for gambling. He was the unofficial leader of the team, and every player referred to him as captain. The third baseman was Jack Carter, a sarcastic ex-bartender from a few counties over, convicted of murder. In left field, you had Laszlo Korda, a convict with anger issues who would fight with other players, umpires, or prison guards at the drop of a hat. Center field was manned by Darius Rowan, an excellent fielder built like an ox who had a severe speech impediment and was entirely illiterate. The team's right fielder was Simon Kensler. At 38 years old, he was the oldest man on the team, His teammates affectionately referred to the balding man as uncle. Pitching for the Wyoming State Penitentiary All-Stars was William Boyer. He was a local rail yard worker who was checked into the Crossbar Hotel for killing his father a few years back. He had a rocket arm and was capable of technical pitches normally only seen in the major leagues. Catching those pitches was a very young prisoner named Horace Donovan. At a mere 19 years old, with a jaw seemingly chiseled from marble, he was far and away the most handsome member of the All-Stars. He would often wink through his catcher's gear at swooning young girls in the stands behind him. And lastly, the position of shortstop was played by Joseph Sang. The bright-eyed Sang was downright phenomenal at the sport, making astounding plays in the infield and batting with power and poise. Joseph Sang probably would have made the major leagues, if he hadn't emptied a revolver into his boss's head over a lover's dispute. Sang was cocky when he first arrived at the Wyoming State Prison, but quickly got on good terms with the warden, prison team manager Felix Alston. The pair would often find themselves in Alston's office chatting about baseball and exchanging baseball cards. In February of 1911, the Wyoming State Penitentiary All-Stars played their first game outside of the prison yard. The players loaded up into a wagon and were taken to the baseball field at the fairgrounds. The people of Rollins loved baseball, and the fans packed in the stands were eager to find out what this team that Warden Allston had assembled behind bars was capable of. The All-Stars arrived at the fairgrounds and saw the packed stands through their barred windows. They were marched into their dugout in chains before being unlocked as armed prison guards looked on. The players rubbed their ankles and stretched before heading out onto the field to warm up. The team they were playing was the Wyoming Plumbing Supply Company Juniors. It was the best team in the town, and they had thought little of playing a team comprised entirely of violent convicts. In the end, the All-Stars lost the game by one run, fighting to the very last inning. As the prison team reshackled and made their way back to the prison vehicle, Felix Alston overheard one of his players grumble. Doesn't matter if we win or lose, we'll all be dead soon anyway. Despite losing their first game, the prison team had put on a pretty good show, and were soon scheduled to play more local teams. With each game against regional teams like the Rollins Rustlers, the Cheyenne Indians, and the Bodie Bandits, the Wyoming State Penitentiary All-Stars got better and better. Within a few months, the team was working like a well-oiled machine. Laszlo was making diving catches in the outfield, Jack Carter was gunning down runners, William Boyer was pitching shutouts, and Joseph Sang was hitting home runs left and right. Soon, the All-Stars were one of the best teams in the region. Fans filled the stands and crowded around the outfield, eager to watch the prison team play. There was a certain thrill to it all cold-hearted criminals, unchained on the field, right there, and they could play. An illicit excitement filled the stands during every game, as the roaring fans watched George Saban, a man who had shot his wife, tag out a runner sliding into second, or saw pitcher William Boyer, who had killed his father with a letter opener, throw a nasty curveball for a third strike. Baseball tradition in that era held that each team needed a mascot, Warden Alston made that mascot his own son, Felix Jr. In a photo taken in 1911, you can see the young blonde Felix Jr. surrounded by smiling criminals in their pressed Navy uniforms. Felix Jr. also operated as the team's bat boy. He played catch with George Sabin before games and had his hair ruffled by Joseph Sang whenever he returned to the dugout. The Wyoming State Prison team won enough games that they were soon the talk of the town. Old men would discuss the skill displayed by the All-Stars in the barber shop, and Warden Felix Alston would talk up his team in the saloon on Main Street. Quite a few people in town were placing consistent bets on the prison team, and their winnings were steadily growing. A few months into their winning season, Felix Alston had to deal with the grim reality of his job as Warden. Several of his players were scheduled for execution in the coming months. The man who had originally appointed Alston as the warden for the state prison was Joseph Carey, who is now Wyoming's governor. Alston and Governor Carey were good friends, so the warden sent a telegram to the governor formally requesting stays of execution for his baseball players on death row. The governor accepted, and then placed his own bets on the team. That afternoon, while the All-Stars were practicing on the prison grounds as guards watched from the nearby tower, Felix Alston called them over to the dugout. He told them he received a telegram from the governor's office that formally delayed their upcoming executions. The death row ballplayers were relieved, to say the least. Some of them even hugged the warden. But the underlying message had been received loud and clear. No other inmates on death row had their sentences delayed. Only the prisoners on the All-Stars. The players knew that their stays of execution were dependent on their winning streak. They were all now literally playing for their lives. With the drive for survival seeped into their games, the All Stars played with a renewed intensity. Outfielders laid their bodies on the line, diving for fly balls. Fastballs from the mound came in with a heat from a pitcher not worried about a sore shoulder in a few decades. Batters zeroed in on incoming pitches with the laser focus of men whose futures were on the line the team played ball like their lives depended on it which they did when the all-stars faced off against the plumbing supply juniors in a rematch the death row inmates won by a landslide 11 to 1. gamblers who had bet on the all-stars made out like bandits over the next few months the wyoming state prison all-stars traveled across the state playing games in public parks minor league stadiums and sometimes even makeshift diamonds in open fields. And they increasingly endeared themselves to the crowds. They signed autographs and led chants. Joseph Sang even seemed to save a man's life when an opposing player had a seizure on the diamond. The quick-thinking Sang ordered the umpire to give him a pencil so he could hold down the man's tongue to prevent him from choking. In fact, all of the players on the all Stars showed signs of reform. First baseman Leroy Cook said he, quote "...never got a square deal." until the prison baseball team," unquote. Pitcher William Boyer wrote in his journal, quote, "...no one ever thought I'd amount to anything. At the Crossbar Hotel, I managed to prove them all wrong," unquote. By this point, Alston allowed the second baseman, George Saban, to come and go from the prison as he pleased in civilian clothes during the day, as long as he was accompanied by an armed officer. Though he had to come back to spend his nights in the prison, He basically got to live the life of a free man. While he was at local bars, Saban would give updates to the people of Rollins about how training was going in the Crossbar Hotel. That summer, the All-Stars kept dominating games, and stays of execution kept being signed on the governor's desk. As news spread of a prison team whose players would not be executed as long as they kept winning baseball games, so too did the team's notoriety. As the team running from the gallows played teams like the iowa bear cubs the salt lake city bees and the lincoln rail splitters tickets sold out quickly baseball fans from across the american frontier clamored to see the wyoming state prison all-stars play some of the best baseball ever seen that side of the mississippi during games the carbon county volunteer brass band would play their lively rendition of take me out to the ball game And an original song entitled Redemption on the Diamond, whose lyrics went like this Hooray for their pride, and each day they survive to make up for their crimes and not yield. With mighty hits and throws, the All Star players go to make right their wicked plight on the field. The other inmates in the Wyoming State Prison enjoyed the team's success as well. Many gathered around the diamond in the prison yard to watch the infamous team play. Some artistic prisoners made banners, while others printed a monthly prison newspaper that included stats from the players and snarky jabs at Warden Alston. Alston loved every bit of it. He also loved the massive profits being brought in by the team through ticket sales and sports betting. Team captain and consummate gambler George Sabin was doing a fantastic job of drumming up confidence in the team, and by now, almost everyone in the town of Rollins. And even the state governor were betting huge sums of money on the All-Stars. Some politicians were even funding their re-election campaigns using their winnings from the prison team. It's estimated that $130,000 were won betting on the All-Stars in 1911. Adjusted for inflation, that's well over $4 million. Not everyone was pleased with the state prison team's success. Managers of other regional teams found the survival motivation that the All-Stars possessed to be insurmountable, and some simply refused to play the team any longer. Some more principled critics called the whole situation barbaric, akin to gladiators in the Roman Coliseum. But the man most upset by the All-Stars' success was ousted warden Otto Graham. He still held a grudge against the local politicians who had outlawed his prison labor. His broom business was now much less profitable now that he had to pay his workers. At first, he sanctimoniously played the good guy and made a fuss about politicians betting on men competing for their lives. But all the local leaders, including Wyoming Governor Joseph Carey, denied their involvement in the gambling. With no political allies to be found, Graham reverted to his malicious ways and tried something more sinister. He paid a guard on the inside of the prison to pay an inmate to accidentally injure star player Joseph Sang. On several occasions, Sang found himself noticing oiled staircases, or narrowly avoiding metal boxes thrown off the roof in his direction. When that didn't work, rumor has it that Graham resorted to poison. Though no one ever had any direct proof, the All-Star players began falling ill from their prison rations. But through all this, they kept winning baseball games. By 1912, though, journalists were closing in on the gambling ring of state judges and politicians. They followed the money, ...and eventually connected the dots from the stays of execution signed by men who were profiting from their survival. These reports eventually found their way to the family of the man Joseph Singh had killed all those years ago. They raised hell in Wyoming, accusing many local officials of corruption... ...and condemning a justice system that wouldn't carry out punishment simply because someone was skilled at a mere game. Governor Carey and Warden Alston blamed bureaucracy for the delays of execution... But by this point, the rumors had escalated to a full-scale scandal. The walls were closing in around the men who were keeping the All-Stars alive. In the spring of 1912, Warden Felix Alston could stall executions no longer. Governor Kerry feared the scandal would lose him re-election, so he forbade judges from signing any more delays. Dates of executions that the All-Stars had eluded for over a year now approached unimpeded no more games were scheduled. The first man set for execution was Joseph Sang. Sang half expected the date to be delayed, as it had before time and time again, but when he noticed the warden couldn't bear to even look him in the eyes, he knew his time had run out. He divvied out his baseball cards to his fellow teammates and tried his best to enjoy the last days of his life. Dozens of letters and petitions from the townspeople of Rollins begging Felix Alston to save Sang littered the warden's desk. But there was nothing he could do. At 2.45 a.m., on the moonlit night of May 24th, 1912, a day after his final appeal was rejected by Wyoming Supreme Court, Sang went calmly and bravely to the gallows, near the baseball field in the prison yard, the field that had allowed him to cheat death for so long. Before the noose was placed around his neck, Joseph Sang thanked the warden and the people of Rollins for their kind treatment and asked someone to tell his mother goodbye for him. His last words were, let's get this over with. Shortstop Joseph Sang was pronounced dead at 2.54 a.m. by the prison physician. The next day, the eleven remaining All-Stars gathered at the baseball diamond in the prison yard. One by one, they all placed their gloves on home plate in honor of their fallen teammate. They knew they would all soon join him on the other side. The Wyoming State Prison All-Stars never played another game, and the team was officially disbanded shortly thereafter. Their final record was 39 wins and only 6 losses. Over the next few months, each and every player of the death row baseball team met their end, five by hanging, five by gas chamber. Every player was executed, except team captain George Saban. One night, he escaped and was never seen again, the lone survivor of the Wyoming State Penitentiary All-Stars. Felix Alston served as warden of the state prison for seven more years. By all accounts, his methods were integral in paving a path from frontier justice to rehabilitation in the prison system. He retired in 1919 lived out his days fly-fishing on the Kern River in Bakersfield, California. The Wyoming State Prison was in service until 1980, when the Wyoming Department of Corrections built a new prison for the state. The old prison grounds were rebranded as the Wyoming Frontier Prison, which operates as a museum and tourist attraction. Visitors can go on guided tours, stand on the gallows, and even spend a night in a cell that once held one of the legendary all-star baseball players the criminals who found something on the baseball diamond over a century ago. Call it repentance, or value, or redemption, those men got to play on borrowed time. And even though they're long gone, no one can ever take that extra year from them. A year spent diving for fly balls, stealing bases, hitting doubles, sliding home, running from the gallows, chasing redemption, and playing for time playing America's pastime. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and my story editor is Thomas Harlander. Upon discovering this topic, I could barely believe it was real, and those tend to be the best stories. A lot of my research came from a book by author Chris Enns called Playing for Time, and I've heard through the always accurate Hollywood rumor mill that this story is set to become a movie. But when or if this story is ever told on the silver screen, you can tell everyone that you heard it here first on Historium. You can follow Historium on all forms of social media, Um, and if you would like to support my work here, the best way to do so is through Patreon. There, you can listen to all of my bonus episodes, and especially the newest one that just came out, which is a massive addendum to the Taiping Rebellion episode, where me and my story editor, Thomas, dive into what it was like to make an episode that long and that brutal, and then we dig into some really interesting uh, alternate history timelines of what the world would be like today if the Taiping Rebels had been successful. All that and more can be all yours, if you support me and my work on Patreon. As always, thanks for listening. In
1: 1922, Hutchinson, Minnesota had a problem. Or, I guess, two interrelated problems? For the adults of Hutchinson, the problem was the teenagers. They kept sneaking off at night to empty barns, where they'd, brace yourself, dance. Who knew what sort of sin and heavy petting in French literature these barn dances might lead to? No, the adults of Hutchinson, Minnesota, did not approve. And neither, it seemed, did the devil. One summer night, Satan himself suddenly appeared in the middle of the dance floor, in a cloud of fire and smoke, and the debauched teens ran in fear. He showed up at the next dance, too and the one after that. In fact, for a few months, it seemed like you couldn't go to a late-night barn dance in Hutchinson, Minnesota, without getting chased out by the devil, pitchfork in tow, flames licking from his lips. Until one night in September, when a 14-year-old boy had the good sense to shoot him in the chest. At which point the devil was revealed, Scooby-Doo style, but bloodier, to be the local Methodist minister, dressed in a costume, decked in electric lights, and flown in from the roof by rope and pulley. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the sometimes comical, sometimes tragical, and always fascinating ways people mess things up. Like why people used to believe birds wintered on the moon, or how a disgraced 18th century Austrian hypnotist gave birth to everything wrong with American politics, or what led the Royal Air Force to parachute cats into Borneo. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or you, you know where to find podcasts. You're listening to what right now. Thanks.